How many of you have ever seen the movie Rocket Man? The movie Rocket Man, what does Disney put that out? Um, it, It is an absolutely hilarious movie, at least in my opinion. That's my type of humor. I like that type of humor. One of the phrases, though, that, um, what is this, Fred Randall, one of the phrases Fred Randall says is, it wasn't me, when he is being injured, he's, he, he, <laughs> he's the one who injured one of the, guy, the astronauts that was supposed to go to Mars, and he gets selected to um, try out to take his place, and so he's, he's being given the grand tour, and he is, he's just investigating, and he is wandering through hallways, and he pushes open these double doors, and the door flies open, hits a guy by the name of Buddy, papers fly everywhere, and he said, oh, it wasn't me, she pushed me through the doors, and, and throughout the movie, he's just this awkward guy, and he, 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 he makes so many mistakes. And his excuse is always, it wasn't me. And while he's competing with one particular guy for that position on the spaceship, they're supposed to, they have this, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like a ping pong ball in a tube. And they're trying to see how long they can hold their breath. And the record is three minutes. And so he crosses, Fred Randall breaks the record. And, you know, he's excited. And, and finally, at the very end, he, he kicks the guy. And the guy sucks in the ball. He spits it out. And it starts ricocheting all over the room, breaking everything in the room. And the room is destroyed. And Fred's response is, it wasn't me. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this is because I believe that blame shifting like this is very common in our day. And and let me just share a story with you, and I I think we're going to be able to see this come into focus a little bit clearer. Many, 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 many years ago when I was about 20 or 21, (sighs) yes, the light bulb was invented by then, just if you were wondering. I was a youth pastor in a church, and on a Wednesday night, which is the church's typical time for prayer, Wednesday night, the teens would be off in their room doing their thing, and they would have their own Bible study, prayer time, and such, and the adults would have theirs. And for whatever reason, I can't remember, uh, the teens were with the adults, and they were sharing prayer requests. And I remember one particular lady raising her hand, and she said, this is a very small church, and she raised her hand and said, I would like prayer for my eyesight. Uh, the doctor said I need to have surgery, and so we scheduled it. It's like a couple of weeks away from now, and, and, and could we just, could I, I would just like prayer that God would heal me. And so <coughs> prayer requests were shared, time for her to be prayed for. One of the elders began to pray, and as he prayed, he prayed that God would anoint the doctors, that doctors would have wisdom, there'd be no complications, and he prayed for everything but her healing. I was curious, and uh, this was her prayer, that God would heal her, and he just simply prayed for the doctors. And so, I mean, I'm only 20, 21, and I approach the elder, he's a gray-headed man, and and I respect him, I love this guy. And I walked up to him and I said, Mr. So-and-so, I can't remember his name, I said, I'm a little confused, and I'm just wondering if you could help me out, but... The sister here prayed that we would pray for her healing, and you pray for the doctors, but maybe you just forget, you didn't pray for her healing. And I was just wondering why. And it was no rebuke, 
the Bible tells us, us younger men, and treat the older guys like you're dead. And I thoroughly respected my dad. He had a good right hook. But I respected my dad. Not that this elder would do that. Or anyways, I, I, I entreated him as an elderly man and, and just asked him a very simple question. He, he understood it very respectfully. He said, well, Mike, here's the bottom line. When we pray... I did not know if God was going to heal her or not, and I did not want to twist God's arm. I would never want to twist God's arm and make him do something that, he does, that is not in his will. And I, I just need you to realize how self-controlled I was. And as he shared this with me, I, I was truly angry. I, I did my very best not to show that. That would not be the place to do that. Um, I did not choose to debate him. I did extend a challenge. I don't know how the words went, but I, I do know that I was respectful. And after that conversation, I was, I was so grieved in my spirit that somehow this man did not understand the sovereignty of God. And he was in a church that should have understood the sovereignty of God. That it is absolutely impossible for us to twist God's arm. How many of you are aware it is absolutely impossible for you in imploring heaven to twist the arm of God? It cannot happen. God longs for his people to pray with such bold, courageous faith. Now, I can only assume that somewhere along the way, teaching had been fed to him, and I, I'm not aware of it being done by the senior pastor, but it is that somehow that we need to come up, and, and I'm going to be just blunt here, can I be blunt, that we need to come up with an excuse for why God chooses not to heal. And there are many reasons, and the bottom line is it is too easy for us to blame God. We live in a day in which people believe that God does not do miracles. That maybe if we pray, he might do a miracle. But the passage we're about to read speaks of laying on of hands, anointing with oil, that they would be healed. This is a common practice in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But many treat the book of Acts as if it is transitional. That it is something that is... Uh, that, that does not apply to us because we live after this transition and so we must live our lives according to the letters that, that Paul and Jude and James and such wrote. But I want to challenge you not to get into why I don't believe that the book of Acts is transitional, but the only transition I see is between the cross and Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts it clearly states that at Pentecost, this is the awesome thing that God did. The plan of salvation had come to an end. Now, man was in transition. Some lived according to the law still and were working out of it. But God was not in transition. God was done. The Spirit was poured out. How he saved then and empowered people then is how he does it today. But we come up with these rationalizations why God doesn't do miracles in our day, and we blame God. Somehow, God doesn't do these awesome, powerful things in our day, and they say things like, because we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, aside from the fact that that verse is completely taken out of context, may I say that Paul walked by faith. He walked by faith. 
he, he walked by more faith than I did. My, he, is, he is one of my heroes in the, in the Bible that I aspire to, and he was certainly a man of faith. He didn't just walk by sight. But you see what we do? We live in a day in which, as a church in general, we are powerless. We live powerless lives. We, we pray powerless prayers because we have come to this point where we have theologized God and his power and relegated it to a day and age that he just doesn't work that way today. So why pray for a miracle? And we blame shift. It wasn't me. No, the real reason why God doesn't do all of these things like he does in the book of Acts is because that's just the way it is. And I, I think perhaps we need to bear a little bit more humility in this and say, you know what? If God is not doing miracles and pouring out his spirit and, 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 and bringing revival as he did then, the problem, church, is not God. It is his people. And we have failed in this. And we have blamed God. We have theologized to the point where our attitudes are such that we, and our postures are such that there is a lack of faith. And as a result, there is powerless prayers. And as a result of that, God does not move. As I believe God desires to move. God moves according to faith, church. I believe God wants to see prayers filled with faith so that he can do awesome, miraculous things in our day. But we need to move beyond ourselves, our pride, or whatever it is that gets in the way that somehow wants to make it God's fault that there are no miracles in our day. And by the way, there are. There are many miracles. In our day. It just does not happen at the hands of those who lack faith. James chapter 5, starting with verse 16, I'm going to read through 18. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I want you to underline that verse. We are going to dig into that verse this week and next week. Elijah was a man just like us. He was just like you people. He was just like me. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth. Produced its crops. Here's what I want to ask you right now. Do you believe that the prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman are powerful and effective? I want you to pause. I want you to seriously consider that. Do you truly believe that the prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman are both powerful and effective? Now, here is what I'm going to suppose. That if we truly, truly believe that, that your prayers as a righteous man or a righteous woman were powerful and effective,
deceptive that we don't see it as twisting the arm of God, but truly that God delights in pouring out His power and healing that we would love to pray. And so maybe my next question should be, do you love to pray? Do you love to pray? When you wake up in the morning or before you go to bed, whenever you have set aside a prayer time, do you look forward to it? Do you long for Jesus' presence to be with Him and to pour out your heart and pray? Now, can I say that I do not long for that nearly as much as I should? And I have ups and downs with regard to that as well. And many times it just has to do with the, the hour that I went to bed. But I have to, as my, myself as well, I have to step back and say, Mike, do you love to pray? Because I believe that if we truly believed that the prayers of a righteous man were powerful and effective, we would run to prayer because we would be anticipating this is, or what is the next thing God is going to do. I'm going to pray for this and I want to see God do this. There would be this sense of faith and anticipation, expectation of the incredible things that God would do. I think maybe, for many anyway, the struggle is simply with a prayer life period. Why don't we pray more? Before I answer that question, I think we need to realize maybe the situation that we're in. At that moment when I asked that elder, why didn't you pray for her healing? And I heard his response. I was angry. I was upset. I was grieved in my spirit. And yet, how hypocritical I can be then. If I do not run to prayer, and why don't I? Do I not believe that my prayers are powerful and effective? That God can still do miracles today? What is up with that? What is up with me? What is wrong with me? Why do not I run to prayer? Why don't we run to prayer? Maybe we blame shift too. Let me give you some of our blame shifting ideas. And I'm just going to share a couple of them and I am not going to focus on them because this is not where I want us to go. I don't want us to simply come to the conclusion of why we don't pray very much. I just want us to come to the conclusion, I am going to pray. And here's why I am going to pray. That's what I want to focus on today. And I believe that's what our t- today's text focuses on. But Why don't we pray more? Maybe it's because we are discouraged. We have prayed. We haven't seen answers to prayer. We we truly don't know why. And so we ask the question, what's the use? But why aren't our prayers answered? At least the way we want. Is it that we're blaming God? 
Is it, we're, we're thinking, well, you know, God just doesn't love me as much as he loves the other person. That seems kind of unjust and it's his fault. Or, or maybe I'm just not righteous enough and God just doesn't see fit to bless my prayers enough, even though that's, that's, that's really on me. But really, we end up blaming God. God, why would you do that? What? We come to this conclusion that our prayers just aren't good enough for God. And we blame him. What's the use? Or we say, you know what, I just don't have time. Let me translate that for you. Prayer's not a priority to me. Because here's the reality. Is, is this not true that you make time for what's a priority for you? If evangelism truly is a priority for us, don't we make time for, prior, for, for to evangelize? Can you imagine what would happen if after a week you said, Oh my goodness, I haven't eaten all week. Wow, I was just so busy, I forgot. Has anyone ever in this room, be honest with me, has anyone ever done that? You missed, you missed food for an entire week and then suddenly realized, wow, I've just been so busy. Now, maybe around 3 o'clock in the afternoon you said, wow, I missed my lunch break two hours ago. I'm famished. Now, that has happened to me. But for a week, no. Why? Because food is a major priority in my life. It is. I'll be honest with you. I love food. I try to eat properly as they can, but I love food. When I'm hungry, I want to eat. Yeah, amen. And again, at that graduation, we want to make sure there is meat. All right. But <clears throat> if eating is a priority, we will make time for it. I don't care how busy you are. But I did say I wasn't going to preach on this, so I'm going to move on. We can say, you know what, there's just too much sin in my life for God to hear me, and apparently I have to be near perfect. And it's easy for us to be overcome with guilt, have a sense of failure. And I just want to ask you, do you feel maybe that you're not righteous enough? Somehow God just says, yeah, sorry. You didn't do enough righteous acts today. I'm not hearing you. I'm going to come back to that one a little bit later. Laziness. Prayer is so much work. Here's a confession. Prayer is hard. It's hard for me. For some of you, and, and for some reason, many ladies fall in this category. I'm not sure why, but they love to pray more than us guys. Maybe they're more verbal. I understand women use 24,000 words and us guys use 12. I've heard that at the end of the day, us guys, we're, we're done with our 12,000. We just want to come home and not say nothing. And our, our, our moms or our wives who have been staying at home with the two-year-old who hardly says two words, man, they're, they're ready to, to, to hit that 24,000 in those last three hours before they go to bed. So open your ears, men. And, but they love to pray and they, they love to converse with God. And, and prayer, for me, prayer is hard. Prayer is hard work. I mean, when I pray, I, I don't like to pray nice prayers. I don't. I don't like to just pray. Because we're going to learn next week, prayer is warfare. Prayer accomplishes something that's powerful and mighty. I don't know, but for me, that, that's, that's work. And, and, and when I pray, I, I want to put everything into it. But sometimes, you know, we're, we're lazy. We pray, perhaps we pray far, 
far too much for ourselves and not nearly enough for others. Is that maybe what you do? You're done after three minutes because that's all that you can think of to pray for yourself. Did I step on toes with that one? Well, prayer, we say, prayer is just boring. Prayer is boring. And the bottom line is we have made it so. It's cyclical. It feeds itself. Prayer is boring, so I stop praying with faith. God stops answering my prayers the way I, you know, I'm not praying in faith. There's no power in my prayers. God's not answering as much. I pray. I feel like my prayers are ricocheting off the ceiling. And I'm just thinking, wow, God doesn't answer my prayers. Prayer is boring. And because prayer is boring, I'm not praying in faith. And because I'm not praying in faith, God doesn't answer my prayers. And I feel like my prayers are bouncing. Do you get the cycle of this? And something needs to happen in us, church, and and we've got to come to this realization, it is not God's fault that we live in a day in which the church of Jesus prays weak, powerless prayers. So the title for the sermon tonight is God's Powerful Praying. People. How many of you want to be one of the God's powerful praying people? I want to be a powerful praying person of God. That, I believe that is God's heart for me. I believe it's His heart for you. So how do we do this, church? How are we to become a people who are powerful in praying? It says right here that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, I don't want us to be confused here. In theology class, we made the distinction. There is a way in which Paul uses this term, being made righteous. And there is a way in which James uses this word. And the term is justification. That is being made righteous. Justification. Paul used it as a declaration. It happens at conversion. You are declared righteous, almost as in a courtroom. You are not just declared innocent, but you are made righteous in his sight because, as Juliana was praying, the imputed righteousness of Christ. For those in the theology class, that's a review. And we looked, though, also concerning this concept of justification. We looked at how James used it. And James does not use it the way Paul does. For Paul, it's a declaration of righteousness. For James, it is a consideration of righteousness. And that's anyway how the NIV translates this word. That people, God himself considers us righteous. Because after conversion... After we have been justified, we begin living a righteous life. Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. That's found in Genesis 15. But he was was considered righteous when seven chapters later, way after his conversion, whatever exactly his conversion was, seven chapters later, that's when he, he, he... obeys God, he is willing to sacrifice his son. Of course, God interrupts and says, hang on a second. An angel challenges him and provides a ram. 
that happened well after chapter 15 where he was declared righteous because of his faith. And do you see where I'm going with this? So James and Paul use this idea of righteousness differently. I am righteous initially because of faith in Christ and I have now this righteousness revealed from heaven imparted to me. But as I live a righteous life, according to James, I am considered righteous. And so this is the type of righteous man. It's not just simply a man who stands in the righteousness of Christ. It is a man who is living a righteous life. And it is this type of man that when he prays, or a woman, when she prays, her prayers are powerful and effective. The prayers are powerful and effective. We might say, well, you know, um, I don't feel very righteous. How righteous do I need to be to pray these powerful and effective prayers? I mean, is it possible that maybe I'm just not righteous enough? And that's why my prayers seem to never be answered. Well, here is very specifically in context what he is getting at. And this is how the righteous man is. He is humble because he is willing to confess his sins. He is teachable. The Spirit of God opens his heart. He responds to the Spirit and he, he confesses his sins. This is what we find in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You want to see the power of God move? How about a little humility? Confessing your sins. Now, what did he tell us in the chapter before? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Is that not the case? to answered prayer. Is that not what answered prayer even is? It is an outpouring of God's grace. How then do we receive His grace, church? It is by us being humble. I have yet to meet a righteous man, a truly righteous man who is not humble. They go hand in glove. And I'm going to tell you this, you cannot be righteous without humility. This righteous man is teachable and readily admits his sins and confesses them. He is forgiven. So how righteous do I need to be? I need to be as righteous as James says that this man needs to be humble so that he would receive God's grace. We're going to talk a little bit more about that grace. But I want to look at this idea of being powerful and effective. And Elijah, Elijah was a righteous man. But he was a man of like passions with us. He was an emotional man. He went through a severe time of depression in which he felt that his ministry was fruitless and he ran for his life and he ran not just to hide himself in a cave. He didn't run to Zarephath again, but when he heard that Jezebel wanted his life, 
He ran for a revival. He ran to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where Moses had an an encounter with God on the top of Mount Sinai. And we see so many parallels between Elijah and Moses at this point when we turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. So go ahead and and turn there to, to 1 Kings chapter 18. But 19, when he runs for his life, he, we see these parallels, and he is seeking a personal revival. He is needing God to do something in his heart. He is so discouraged. He is just like all the other prophets who sought to bring a word of the Lord, and then he's going to die just like all of them. He is not going to be able to bring about revival only for 65 plus years had the nation, had the northern kingdom been separated from the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom been moving into idolatry and especially Baalism and he was seeking this revival and this unification between the kingdoms and it just seemed like it was not going to happen. He was just like you and me. I want to focus though on this idea that James brings up, he highlights, That he prayed that God would not send rain. Because this is an example of powerful and effective praying. And so I think it would behoove us if we want to understand a righteous man praying powerful, effective prayers. What does that look like? Let's, Let's turn to the person that James talks about. But understand this. Before we do, yes, he is a righteous man. But he is just like you and me. He is a vulnerable to emotions. He's vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, just like us. But he made some wise choices. And those things I want us to look at. Now, I want us to understand something before I read the passage here. That in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to it. This is the third year of the drought. It lasted three and a half years. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. So this is a prophetic word. He says, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. He has the word of the Lord that rain is going to come. Knowing the will of God now Later in chapter 18, he prays. Now, remember, James said that he initially prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again that it would rain, and it rained. Now, James is going under an assumption here, but it is a spirit-led assumption, and perhaps the spirit revealed this to him. But the scripture does not record in chapter 17, Elijah praying that it would not rain. All we know is that when it was going to rain, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He prayed and it rained. In chapter 17, we hear this, that we hear this, that it says Elijah the Tishbite, verse 1, from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Except at my word. 
you you can almost imagine how Ahab feels. He just he just crossed the line. He just put his head on the chopping block. If it's not going to rain for years, and the rain will not come except at his command. What are you going to do as king? And it's not raining in your kingdom. Who are you going to go after? I'm going to, I'm going to hunt down this man because apparently it's not going to rain until he says it will. Until it's at his command that it will rain. I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to make him command it to rain. And so what is, what is he do? Elijah hides. But I can only imagine that the word of the Lord comes to him to go tell this to Ahab. And now he is praying, okay, God, I've just stuck my neck out on the line, and he prays. The word of the Lord comes, and he prays. Just like in chapter 18, the word of the Lord came, and he prays. Now, having set that up, I want us to look at what happens here in chapter 18. Understand, and we're not going to go over this, but understand that on Mount Carmel, there is a duel, if you will, between Elijah and and Yahweh and versus the 450 prophets of Baal and Baal himself. Now, so I don't have to get into a long teaching on this. Just understand, when I say Baal, insert demon. Okay? Because whenever they would pray to their idols, Paul tells us, other passages in the Old Testament even tell us, that they were really praying to and worshiping demons. So understand, there is a real power behind this God Baal, it's just not a God, it's a demon. A created being by God who were angels and they fell. And so after this duel, and you know the story, the fire does not fall in the sacrifice for Baal, but fire is sent from heaven by Yahweh upon Elijah's sacrifice, consumes it, licks up the water, licks up the dust, and Elijah has the 450 prophets of Baal put to death. Duel done. Time for revival. So Elijah goes up on top of the mountain. And he says in verse 41, he says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea. He told his servant and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time. The servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. This is the prayer that was powerful and effective. And I realize I'm not going to be able to get through the, very, the four different things that I wanted us to look at, but I am going to get through some of them. So... As we look at this, I want us to first understand, as I've already outlined for you, Elijah knew the will of God. Elijah prayed absolutely according to the will of God. God had said it was going to rain, and he knew it was going to rain. 
So he knew that eventually God would answer his prayer. He just perhaps did not know exactly when. I'm going to guess that when he is speaking with Ahab, there is a prophetic sense. We're not told that God communicated to him. But he does turn to Ahab and says, the sound of heavy rain is coming. There were no clouds in the sky, church. No clouds. And yet he says prophetically, the sound of heavy rain is coming. I want to tell you tonight, church, there is a sound of heavy rain coming in your life. And some of you have been praying these prayers. And as we go through this these, these principles that Elijah implemented that we see unfold for us, God is going to have you implement them in your life. And God is telling you prophetically tonight, there is a sound of heavy rain coming your way. Now, in all honesty, at least somewhere out in the Mediterranean, the sea that he refers to here, it was raining. It just wasn't raining there. As a matter of fact, you couldn't even see the rain off in the horizon. It was so far away. There truly was, at that moment, maybe hundreds of miles away, but at that moment, there truly was the sound of heavy rain. But it's coming here. It's coming here, Ahab. And it hasn't done that in three and a half years. But it's coming here. He prayed according to the will of God. How do we discern God's will? Because here's the honest truth. The only way that we can truly know the will of God is through his word. When the spirit of God speaks to us prophetically, we accept that by faith. But it is not the same as the word of God. The word of God is infallible. The voice, the prophetic voice is not. It is for this reason in 1 Corinthians 14 that we are challenged to weigh every prophetic word. Now, we're going to be talking about prophecy and the like in theology class, not this Wednesday, but the next. If you're interested, you can join that. But the truth is, there may, apart from the word of God, there is no 100% certainty on our part of the will of God, apart from his word. So as a result, I want to know his word. I want to be able to pray according to his word. It's silly for a person who is married to pray, well, God, I'm not getting along with my spouse. Should I divorce them? That would not be praying according to the will of God. Because the Bible says God hates divorce. I want to know God's word. But you know what? This is what I do know. God rescues his servants. Maybe not always, but God has a good track record of rescuing his servants. And as we turn to Daniel chapter 3, we see an example of, it's not a prayer, but I tell you what, I am 100% certain that they prayed. There, there is no way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not pray. Now, they may not have knelt down because they did not want to kneel down because people would think they're kneeling to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set before the people. But they prayed standing. I am sure of it. 
Wouldn't you, if your life was on the line, wouldn't you, if you were told that if you didn't bow down to this idol, that you would be cast into the furnace? And Nebuchadnezzar is so hot with anger that he says, stoke that furnace seven times hotter. To the point where those who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they are the ones who die. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here is what they say. I mean, what a powerful testimony to, to the sovereign God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king because they refused to bow down and were threatened to be thrown into the furnace. And this is their reply, O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They're speaking to the king. Just understand that. If we are to be thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not. Let me pause there. Even if, perhaps, maybe, we have missed God's will on this. And he's not going to rescue us because, by the way, we have been praying like crazy since this morning. And you've been telling us about it. And we've been praying that God will rescue us. And we have this prophetic sense that, he will not, that, that God will rescue us. But even if we've missed, even if we have missed God and we have missed his will, King, you need to know this. Even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, O okay, King. That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So I'm going to encourage you. You don't have to know the absolute perfect will of God to pray for a miracle. But believe for that miracle. Does God not do miracles? Yes, he does. How about if we pray for an awesome, powerful miracle? All the while seeking the will of God. But if for whatever reason... And God can have many reasons he chooses not to answer your prayer exactly as you prayed it. And he does something, he does it a different way. Here it says, you know what, we're still not going to bow down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what, God, if you choose to take us, we're okay with that. Because we will not deny the sovereign Lord who is our king. We will not do that. And they're okay if God says, guys, I'm sorry, it's time to take you home. So I'm going to encourage you. Seek the will of God. Seek to discern it. Pray for a miracle. Pray with faith that God will do a miracle. But if God does not answer with the miracle that you are praying for, know this. Know this. As long as you are seeking his will and you are seeking to and you are praying with faith, know this. God has a better answer. He has a better answer. He has something that is more awesome than what you have been praying for. Expect that. So that as a result, if he does not answer our prayers as we have prayed, then we say, so be it. Because, God, you've got a better plan. And how else do we 
discern the will of God and pray according to that will? Scripture also says to pray in the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God in us knows the heart of God and prays according to that will. Pray in the Spirit. The next thing that we see in in Elijah, 1 Kings, let me turn, let's turn back to 1 Kings 18. And I'm going to need to conclude with this. It says that he climbed to the top of Carmel and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. And I want you, before I mention, say anything, I I want you to ask yourself the question, why would he assume that posture in prayer? That that posture. Why would he go to the top of Mount Carmel and kneel down and put his face between his... Not only is he a limber man, oh my goodness, but he is contorting himself and he is bowing as far as he can. I am going to assume that he is praying. He tells the man, go seven times, but his posture right now is one of prayer. His posture is one of humility. His posture is not one that is casual. He is interceding. He is serious in prayer. I, can, I, I would word it this way. He is desperate in prayer. He has just prophesied the sound of heavy rain is coming. Okay, God, now do it. I know you're going to do it. He probably had people throughout the land um, when they would see him, Elijah. We've been without rain. My, My crops have failed. God was bringing a drought that was devastating Israel. And I can only imagine, now God gives the word, it's time for the rain to come, that he is praying passionately because he has compassion for the people. But there he is bent over in desperate prayer. How do we so completely rely upon God and pray with desperation like this? So that as a righteous man or righteous woman, our prayers are powerful and effective. I think that the posture that he assumes or... or that this desperate mentality that we have will affect how we pray. And I'm not just talking about our posture. But maybe as we pray, we are far too casual. I have to admit, God has just been convicting me. There are times in which in my prayer life, I am just far too casual. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time for praying casually. I mean, I am in a a loving relationship with God, and I just converse with Him many times as a friend would to a friend. And and I want want to invite Him into my life, and so I speak of my life and, and the various things going on in my family, and I lift them up to Him, and I converse with Him in this rather casual manner. But there are prayers that require us, church, to move beyond the casual. I can only imagine that this type of desperate prayer is more than just, God, would you please bless the land? How many times do we pray that prayer? Oh, Lord, 
Bless my mom and my dad. Bless my auntie and my uncle and bless my pet. Bless my... It, many times as we go through our prayer list, it's, Lord, would you please bless this person and bless that person? And God is saying, man, do I want to bless them, but I need you to tell me. Pray with your heart like you mean it. How do you want me to bless them? Tell me how you want me to bless them. I'm so eager to bless them, but tell me how. It's not as if God doesn't. But he wants to hear it from your heart. This is the purpose of prayer. We don't pray because God doesn't know what's going on in our lives. We don't pray because God's clueless about what's going on in our church family or our business. We pray because God desires something from our hearts. More than just, God, would you please bless? I'm sorry if I stepped on toes. It's not that there's not a place, God, would you please bless? But he wants so much more when we pray. Because this is the heart and soul of prayer. It's us communing with God. It's us, it's us coming to this place where as we pray fervently and powerfully, the heart of God is moved. And I believe that is very biblical. I'm not twisting his arm, but I am moving his heart. And when I move the heart of God in this desperate type of prayer, God does powerful and effective things in our lives, church. And, and Elijah is aware of this. And he is bent over in humility and the sense of desperation. God, please. I'm going to ask us. How do we pray desperately? Can I just say, by desperate prayer, I'm not talking about panic and crisis. I'm not saying fear overwhelms us. That somehow... That somehow by fear getting a hold of me, and I'm panicking, God will respond to that. that. Fear is not faith. I lead my emotions. My emotions should not lead me. You might want to write that down. We lead our emotions. Our emotions are not to lead us. So when I'm talking about desperate prayer. That is not, I'm not talking about emotion here. So it may express itself in some emotion. I'm not talking about fear. I'm talking about complete surrender to his power and will. Complete surrender to his power and will. And many times that's going to bring us to fasting. I remember some years ago, in my business, um, I felt like I, I did and, and still do good work when, when I paint. Um, I, I believe I have a good reputation with those dealerships that I've served. I came across a company, won't mention its name, and a particular dealership asked me to do a job, and I said, "Yeah, you're going you, that can't be done." I came back the next week, and a company had done it. The people had backed up into a mailbox. And like a can opener, ripped the 
side of the vehicle open. And when I, I was told this is the same vehicle, I could not believe it. I said, no way. And I looked at it and looked at it, and I saw just one little thing that hinted at maybe this was it. I was amazed. They did phenomenal work. I feared for my job at that dealership. They did excellent work. I eventually ended up catching up to the guy. He worked for a company. He wasn't the owner. I knew the owner. And he said he had been a body shop manager for 10 years. And now he was working a deal with this, the owner of the company. And he was going into dealerships and doing jobs that the other guys like me couldn't do. And he, his accounts, he was getting more and more accounts. I remember he came on to uh, another dealership. And I had lost that dealership, by the way. Um, he came on to another dealership that I had had from the very beginning. I started sweating bullets. I said, God, what am I going to do? I can't afford to lose this account. This guy is excellent at what he does. And I believe that the field that I had done, I believe that I was excellent in what I did. But he did beyond that. His business, were, therefore, is more attractive to most dealerships. And as a result, when he came on the lot, he did a job that I couldn't do. Sometime later, I, I was friends with a guy who does interior work, and I began to talk with him. And he said, he said, Mike, you need to know something. This guy from this particular company, he is trying to find out every single account that you have, and he is going to, he's going to get in those accounts, and he's going to push you out. His goal in life is to put your company under. I was shocked by that. I thought... Why would, you, why would you do that? Why, why would you be filled with such animosity? I had spoken with this guy. He knew that I was a Christian. He knew that I was a pastor. I was dumbfounded. Why, why would you want to do that? When other companies have come on a lot that I was on, or I come on to a, a lot that another painter, and sometimes dealerships have two painters, we greet one another. We tell each other, I'm not here to push you out. I'm just here to to take care of whatever if you don't have time to take care of, but the, the guy has me here for a reason. And I just want you to know I respect you, and that's how we treated one another. And this guy, absolutely not. And I'll be honest with you, my heart was filled with fear. I could not afford to lose not just that account, but if he was going to pursue me and try and steal all of my accounts, I said, God, my hand is in, my, 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 my business is in your hands. God, I don't know what to do. And I had purposely not learned how to do large work like that because my purpose was to stay small. So do I, have, do, do I change the face of my business? And I believed that the Lord was saying no, no. And I prayed about it. And I prayed about it and God said no. I want to read a passage to you and I realize I'm over time, but I am going to wrap this up right now. Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, I want you to know that your pastor was praying, and he was praying hard, and he was fasting. And I'm not sure to what degree I had mentioned this to my wife. I didn't want her to fear. And to be honest with you, it was humiliating for me. It was. This guy was doing more work 
in, in dealerships that I could do. And he did excellent work. Psalm 18 says, verse 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. And I said, God, I don't know why this guy is my enemy. I don't want him to be my enemy, but he is pursuing me as if he is my enemy. He has no respect for my business. He has no respect for, for, for me being in this dealership. He recognizes, he's seen my work, he recognizes it as excellent work, but his goal is to tank my business. And he's after me. And I'm just saying right now, God, I need you. In verse 16, it says, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. I don't know if you can identify with what I'm saying right now. Maybe there's an enemy in your life. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe, maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's, maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, 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 an attitude that you have tried to get rid of. Maybe that's the enemy. But the bottom line, there is an enemy that is seeking after us. And he wants to subdue us. And he wants, us, he wants to take us down. And I'm going to tell you this. That prayer is the answer. Prayer is the answer because a righteous man's prayers are powerful and effective. And I remember praying and praying and I said, God, there is no reason why I should have these accounts. This man is better than me. There's no reason for me to, except, God, I need to support my family. And I'm going to try as hard as I can to be the most attractive uh, painter that this company uh, could have. And I'm going to be absolutely faithful in, in everything. And I prayed and I said, God, you need to deliver me. After a while, I stopped seeing the guy. That's weird, maybe he... He went on vacation, but I think I believe I heard something to that effect, and I didn't see him. As a matter of fact, in my other accounts that he tried to, was trying to get into, I wasn't seeing him. And, and, and I remember stopping this guy who does interior work, and, and I said, what, what's, ever, what's, what's up with this company? I've not been seeing them around. And he told me this, the owner of the company, he got rid of the business. He moved up to Atlanta. His major was in engineering. He went back into engineering. And this other guy, he tried to make it on his own and he couldn't do it. He tanked. The Lord says, don't gloat over the downfall of your enemies. And I tried so hard. But inside of me, there was like, yes, thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayers. I, I wasn't praying that you would destroy the man's business. It was not my prayer. I was just, God, just help me to have enough work so I can support my family. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Can you stand with me, church? I'm going to ask you, what is it that you are praying for? 
the cry of the heart of a righteous man in desperate prayer is powerful and effective. And it will accomplish much in the heart of God. My prayer is, church, pray in a way that through your prayers you turn the heart of God. He is eager for this. He is eager for His heart to be turned by your prayers. Father, I ask that You would show us and teach us how to pray desperate types of prayers. You would show us, God, how we can pray in a way that moves the heart of God. Father, that we would move away from so much of the casual type of praying. And God, when we are in warfare, that we would pray with such seriousness. We would pray with fasting. We would pray with whatever we need to, God. We would sacrifice if it takes hours in our day to pray. That, God, we would be willing to pray in this way. I believe as a church, God, we are in an hour in which we need desperate prayer. You are moving us to a new stage to be able to impact a com- several communities. I believe this is your heart, God. I believe that you have called us to such a time as this. The enemy hates it. But we're praying, God, that you would clear the way that whatever the devil is trying to do, that you would bring his kingdom down and that you would open the doors. And the Father, as we become more and more of this praying, desperately praying church, that we are going to see the heart of God turn and he is going to do miracles in our day and families will be rescued and hearts will be opened and people will be healed and your kingdom will come here on earth as it is in heaven. God, this is our prayer. Move us from the casual, God, to the most serious and the desperate. Change our heart, God, that we would pray in such a way as to incline yours to us. Thank you for being such a patient and loving and compassionate and good God. Bear with us, God, as we learn to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome, prayer-filled week.